Let's open our Bibles to Psalm 2. To cover the second and third psalm, they're very short. The second has 12 verses and the third has 8 for that much. So we pick up with the second psalm. This is a psalm of David. It's called a Messianic psalm. In it he talks about his uh, enemies and then God's plan for his son. Two major thoughts. And actually it could be divided into four divisions. First three verses, the nations are raging. In verses 4 through 6, the Lord in heaven derides them. And in verses 7 through 9, the Son, the Son proclaims His decree. And then verses 10 through 12, advice is given to the kings to yield obedience to the Lord's anointed, which is, of course, the Lord uh, Jesus, the Son of God. If we look at the first verse. <clears throat> The psalmist says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? We think of the heathen, we think of the ungodly. They were all the, the people that were not the people are called the Jews here. So the heathen and then God's people. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? So that all people, because of human sin, because of man's hatred, because of opposition to the Lord, they rage and they imagine a vain thing. We might ask, why indeed do they rage and imagine a vain thing? Heathen are the Gentile nations, of course, and the nations have always been against God. We find that uh, they imagine a vain thing. They imagined when Jesus came, a temporal kingdom. They thought Jesus was going to set up on a kingdom upon this earth. And they... they uh, crucified Jesus because they would not receive him as the son of God and one who was going to bring in an eternal kingdom and to let his name perish from the earth. They imagined they could uh, disclaim all things about him, his deity, his sonship, uh, his sinlessness. They wanted to disclaim everything and when it came to the resurrection, they certainly wanted to disclaim that. And it was not only the people that imagined the vain thing, but the the uh, leaders as well. In verse 2 it says, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Opposition is by the leaders as well. When we think of the leaders against Christ, it says they set themselves. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together. Remember when Jesus came, Herod, king of uh, Judah, did set himself against the Lord, didn't he? Remember when Jesus was born, he asked the wise men, "Where's the, they came?" The wise men came saying, "Where is he that's born King of the Jews?" And and when when uh, they were on their way to find baby Jesus, so Herod he said, "Well, when you find him, you bring me word again that I may go and worship him also." But he didn't want to worship him; he wanted to destroy him. And later on, because uh, he saw that the wise men did not return to Herod, then. He set out to, to get rid of Jesus by killing all the male children from two years old and under, depending upon the time that they had first gotten uh, seen the star in the east. So they hated Jesus. Herod, king of Judah, did, and Herod Antipas of Galilee later on. You know, one Herod, after this Herod died, another Herod took his place. And then Pontius Pilate, the kings of the earth, ever since have set themselves against the Lord. The Jewish rulers have set themselves. They all have become his enemies. One uh, Roman ruler, 
Roman emperor by the name of Diocletian had a medal struck or coined that the name of Christian of Christians being extinguished. He had it in quotes upon this coin. They never were extinguished, were they? The counsel against Jesus at his death, and they crucified, the Bible says, the Lord of glory. If you read in Acts chapter 3, let me read it for you, verses uh, 13 through 18, it says. Listen. Well, let's just read 17 and 18. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. They called them and commanded them not to speak at all or, nor teach in the name of Jesus. They set themselves against, even after Jesus was crucified and resurrected during the days of Peter and John, they still threatened them that they could not preach Christ. And you go on down in uh, verse 25, it says, uh, well, let's read verse 24 and 25, 26 and 27. It says, And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and, in, and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said. Now then, this proves that David wrote the second psalm. Now look at it. Who the, by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine the vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, or his anointed. In verse 27, uh, Peter interprets this. This chapter, did I say three? I'm reading from four. I got, oh, I'm sorry. I said three, and I'm reading from four. There's another reference, four, beginning with verse 25. And I've been reading from four all this time. Uh, but pick up then with verse, uh, let me give you that again, verse 26. 25 and 26, the fourth chapter of Acts. Who by the mouth of thy servant, David, has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth, now here's where uh, Peter interprets this, For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. So you see, uh, Peter is quoting from, uh, from uh, the second psalm, and he's attributing that second psalm to David, and he said it's being fulfilled in the fact that, that Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles, and then he says the people of Israel. So when he speaks of the Gentiles, the heathen raging, and then the people imagining a vain thing, and then their leaders... It all ties together. The people many times were spoken of as the people of Israel or the Jews. So they're different. The, those people are different than the Gentiles. And when it just says people, it usually refers to the Jews. <clears throat> so back in our psalm, and maybe uh, there was another reference there, uh, uh, chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, that I should have read, and I thought I was uh, giving you that one when I was reading in chapter 4 uh, in Acts. So there's another passage there when it says they crucified the Lord of glory in chapter 3, verse 13 through 18. We can find that the heathen raged. Uh, the Roman soldiers were in a rage when they took Jesus. They were being, led, they were being uh, prompted by their leaders to do what they had to do. Judas led them away. And certainly it was a vain imagination for the Jews and the people to think that they could... Uh, change the purpose and plan of God. 
It was not only vain in that they could not succeed, but it was vain in that they that it was a terrible thing to imagine that they could do. Thirty Roman emperors, governors, and provinces uh, of provinces and others in high offices, who distinguished themselves by their zeal and bitterness in persecuting the early Christians, out of thirty uh, Roman emperors and these others, other leaders. Uh, I have a little note here from uh, some research. One became speedily deranged after uh, some atrocious cruelty, and one was slain by his own son. One became blind. The eyes of one started out of his head. One was drowned. One was strangled. One died in a miserable in a miserable captivity. One fell dead in a manner that will not uh, bear recital. One died of so loathsome a disease that several of his physicians were put to death because they could not abide the stench that filled his room. Two committed suicide. A third attempted it, but had to call for help to finish the, the work. Five were assassinated by their own people or servants. Five others died the most miserable and excruciating deaths. Several of them having an, uh, untold complications of diseases, and eight were killed in battle or after being taken prisoners. So we find a whole total of all the rulers and leaders that set themselves against Christ uh, came to naught in a very tragic and terrible way. And history records those facts that I just read for you. So, And the real cause of their enmity, something that we might take into consideration, they would not listen to God. In Proverbs 1 verse 29 it says, For they... For that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. There are many people that hate knowledge. There are many people that will not choose the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is to reverence God. Hatred of human nature against God. Remember Joseph back in Egypt when Joseph, uh, when uh, his brethren saw that his father loved Joseph more than the others, they hated him. Then when he had the dreams, they hated him and yet the more... And then on down in 37th of uh, Genesis, it says, And they hated him because of his dreams and because of his words. Two things. Human hatred is great. Hence, the things of God. Don't be surprised if there's opposition against the gospel and against the preachers, against churches, against Christians. Because it certainly does exist. And don't, don't ever be so naive as not to believe that that is the truth. Because it's out there. I want you to notice something. It says uh, in verse 2, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. In other words, they don't want God to have any control. They want to break God's uh, bands of restraint against them and his cords of control. They do not want God to be in control of their lives. We have people like that. The humanists of our nation say, we want to be our own gods. We want to choose our own gods. We don't want God to control us. Many of our politicians are that way. And many people in the country are that way. And they say, oh, we don't want to mix God in our nation, in our politics. Well, it was founded upon God, as Brother Nichols read in his poem a little bit ago. We started out that way, and we've gotten so far away that people say, oh, I want to be my own. I want to be free. Look at this scripture. It says, let us break their bands. 
They want to break bands from God. They don't want God to have any control in their lives uh, and cast away their cords from us. Anything that binds us to God, we want to get rid of. That's a nation of rebellious people, isn't it? They want to do that. And we've got a nation of people just like that. We're thankful for the ones that do not want to do that. We're thankful for the ones that want God to be in control. Not only of their lives, but in the, in the uh, providence and in the uh, uh, future of our country. And there are many that do. And we can uh, be thankful that there's still some that want God to control things in this nation. But they say, oh, that's not proper to have God in control. They say, now, you know, you can't mix church and state or religion and politics. Well, it was mixed to start with. And when it was mixed to start with, it was pretty good, wasn't it? And just like we read Sunday about the father of our country saying it's the duty of all men, George Washington, to give thanks uh, for God's bounties and blessings and providence, where you hear Sunday and the sermon Sunday morning, and also to recognize him as the one that can uh, give us a victory when we have to go out in battle and, and trust in him for our protection and guidance. We had people coming back to God like some of our forefathers depended upon God. This nation would be different. The Gospels, the Bible says, his citizens hated him. Then we find that uh, the stupidity of his enemies in verses 4 and 5. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Look at that. First of all, God is far above all of this that goes on in this earth, right? He's way above it all. He, he sits in the heavens. We're down upon this earth. These rulers that want to uh, break his bands and cords and restraint, they're upon this earth. We're little creatures here, but he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. He, he just looks down and says, the Lord shall have in the, them in derision. You know, the word derision means an object of ridicule or scorn. In other words, he'll make a laughing stock of them. God sits up there and he just laughs at them and says, what do these little feeble creatures think they're going to do anyway? You know, a lot of men are so high and mighty, they will not recognize God. And the first thing you know, when death comes close to the door, they begin to say, you know, after all, you know, they're brought down from giant size that they were to little puny men. And they say, you know, I'm not so powerful after all. And, you know, I'm going to die like all others. And, and, you know, there might be a God up there somewhere. And they begin to think a little bit, don't they? I wonder how many atheists really die as atheists. I, don't think, I think they live that way, but they don't die that way. They become believers pretty quick. When, when the stroke of God comes upon them, well, it's a little bit different story. But we have them just bragging today, you know. We want to live our own lives. We want to make our own gods. We want to be our own God. But he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. A laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. God considers the stupidity of their enemies. Of these enemies. Certainly they are stupid. God laughs at their plots. He laughs at modern day kings. He laughs at rulers and leaders that try to bring his counsels to naught. I wonder back there when... Oh, Pharaoh, you know, he was going to uh, certainly hold the children of Israel down to a minimum. And he was killing all the, the male children that were born, cast them in the river. And remember, uh, he, he had it going his way and he thought, well, I'll keep them where they belong. And I won't let them multiply any, but the more they were afflicted, the more they multiplied and grew. And then baby Moses came along. 
And you know he was put in the ark of bulrushes. And then Pharaoh's daughter takes, <laughs> takes him out of the river, you know, and raises him up and gives him an education. I wonder if he that sitteth in the heavens didn't laugh at that time. So here, this, this Pharaoh thought he was going to get rid of my leader. Now his own daughter is raising him up and giving him an education right here in Egypt. The best educated that there could, education that could be provided and the best provision. And the Bible says, by faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. Can, have you ever thought about that? Remember when they had their, later on, when they had old Dagon, the God that was sitting up there? And, you know, when the ark was brought before him, he fell on his face and broke his arms off and everything, didn't he? And then they set him back up, and then finally he just broke all to pieces. It said, Then the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Remember old Belshazzar? How he uh, spoiled the temple and took the golden vessels and the silver vessels and all of these things, and he had this great uh, feast and this great uh, drinking party and made a feast for all of his lords and his concubines and all of them, and they were drinking wine out of these sacred vessels. And the writing on the wall, meeny, meeny, tickle, you farce, and thou art weighed in the balances and found warning, and his knees begin to knock one against another, the Bible says. You ever heard people so scared their knees knocked? Well, old Belshazzar was. He says, this night the kingdom is going to be taken away from you and give to the Medes and the Persians. And in that night he was slain, and his kingdom was taken away. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. You see, God doesn't have to worry about men. He has everything under his control. And, and God is showing here the stupidity of his enemies. And he says uh, in verse 4 and 5, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Look, <clears throat> first he laughs, then he speaks. And when God speaks, he speaks with power. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. When God's wrath comes upon men, they will certainly know that it's from God. And God can, of course, uh, bring his wrath and his judgment upon any, when he will, and as he will. I want you to look at verse 6. It says this, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Yet in spite of all the raging, uh, the heathen raging and the people imagining vain things and the kings of the earth setting themselves against the Lord and the rulers taking counsel against the Lord and his anointed and all of them saying we're going to break their bands, the bands of God, the control of God, his restraint and the cords, we're going to break them uh, from among us. It says yet, verse 6, have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion? In spite of all the opposition, God's purpose will not be stopped. Listen for us. That should be a, a, something very positive. That you know, men rage and they complain and they oppose the things of God. It doesn't make any difference. Have you ever seen someone just pick up a little old uh, spider or a grasshopper or something by one of his legs and just... He just wiggles around there and just goes every direction trying to get loose. I've seen little kids do that. You know, they pick up something and 
Well, you know, God, He just holds it out there and just lets us wiggle ourselves to death. And you know, we just squirm around. We think we got everything. And God says, look, He says, His purpose is going to be accomplished regardless of all the opposition, all the squirming around, all the, all the things we like to do. Our power is so limited against God's power. He is mighty in power. And He says, yet... Have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion? In spite of all that they've done, yet have I set my king. And then in verse 7, we find that God has, God has acknowledged Jesus to be his son. In verse 7, I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now then, uh, notice, it turns here to the Lord, or to Jesus. I will declare the decree that God has given him the power because he says, The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. So it's Jesus that, that is declaring the decree. It's Jesus that is coming into prominence and into authority here. And God has given him this authority. Notice he says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me. This is still... Uh, what God is saying to his son, ask of me and I will give thee, I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. That's what Jesus is going to do. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So God has acknowledged Jesus to be his son. Remember when Christ was baptized? God, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove lighted upon him and a voice from heaven said, Thou art my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Nate says, But unto the Son he saith. Listen, God's speaking. He spoke of the angels. Then it says, Unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And he says, And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. And he says, And they shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time? Show my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. And then it says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? So God says, Unto the Son he saith, Unto the Son he saith, So declare the decree, The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. Some of this language is spoken of in Hebrews chapter 1. If his first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. You find that in Hebrews 1. Bringeth his first begotten into the world. Oh, we have people now, the theologians that argue over whether he was talking about Christ being begotten in the beginning, back in time, someplace, eternity, or was it the begotten that he's speaking of, of as his humanity when he was born into this world? Or was there a time that Christ was begotten uh, back in eternity? He uses that to speak of his only. It doesn't mean that there was a time ever when Christ was not. It means that he was eternal with the Father. He's the begotten. It doesn't mean he had to be uh, made or to be born of God in the sense that he would uh, be 
a creation of God because he was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was what? God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When you talk about uh, Jesus in the beginning, the Bible teaches that he uh, was before all things, and by him all things consist. I'm talking about someone being born when he speaks of his son as the begotten. He's showing him as the only dear one, the, one, the son of his love. In uh, Acts 13, verse 33, God raised him up from the dead. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. God will give his son all the earth and all the people of it for his inheritance. Isn't it amazing that even those that were raging against him, if they were converted, he'd be, they would be his inheritance? How do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? These heathen and these people, the Jews, and all among them that were saved would finally become his inheritance. Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. And there will be a day that the Bible teaches that it will become Christ. In Revelation 11, verse 15, the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world, look, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There's going to be a time that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of, of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. God will give his son uh, all the earth and all the people in it for his inheritance. Remember in the announcement when Christ was born, uh, the angel said to Mary, uh, thou will bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus. The Bible says that he shall be great. He shall sit upon the throne of uh, his father David, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. You read Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33. And Jesus will come and be king of kings and lord of lords. In Revelation 19, verse 11 through 16, let me read it for you. And I saw heaven open, behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. You know you're going to ride a white horse someday? Yes, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And that's the righteousness of saints, right? So the saints or the armies of heaven that come on. One lady over in a Piatone, Oklahoma one time says, Well, I don't, you know, I can't ride. Well, maybe the Lord will teach you to ride and you'll come back on that white standard. It says, and, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Isn't that what it says in our passage? Rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Look back in Psalm 2. It says in verse 9, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. What we just read? When he comes as king. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So he's not only going to come as king of kings and Lord of lords, but with all the power of destruction that is needed to set things right. And God demands, let me give you something else. You have a Psalm 2? Psalm 2 now. Look at verse 10. God demands <clears throat> that all men reverence his Son. 
He says, Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. He says, You that set yourselves against the Lord and his anointed, now be wise. And he says, Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. The man that will not re receive instruction will not be wise. When, you, when they listen to God, they will be wise. God demands that all men reverence Christ. The Bible says he exalted him above every name that is named that every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul tells us that we're to hear him. Matthew 17, verse 5, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Hebrews 1, verse 1 and 2 says, God who at sundry times and in divers manners has spoken in, has spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, or in his Son whom he hath appointed heir of all things, and by whom also he made the worlds. And it goes on to say, who's being in the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins. We talk about a place of purgatory. You know where it was? On the cross. And he by himself purged our sins. He didn't need any fires of hell. He didn't need any intermediate state of burning your sins away. He purged our sins once and for all on the cross. By Himself, He purged our sins. And He sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high. Being made so much better than the angels as He hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And you go on in Hebrews chapter 1. Let's look at this. Uh, we must pay homage to God's Son as sovereign. Notice verse 12. Kiss the Son, lest he, be lest he be angry, and you perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. We must pay homage to God's Son as sovereign. We're to kiss the Son. We're to have that reconciliation. Samuel anointed Saul king and kissed him. Samuel 10, uh, verse 1. It says, lest you perish from the way, lest he be angry and you perish from the way. Someday Jesus will come and execute his wrath, his judgment. Revelation 6 verse 17 says, the great day of his wrath has come and who shall be able to stand? We ought to bow before the Lord and realize that he's all powerful, almighty. We must be reconciled to him. We must pay homage to God's son, his sovereign, lest his wrath, uh, when his wrath is kindled but a little that? What if it's kindled a whole lot? See, what if God were to heat that furnace seven times hotter than it was wont to be heated, as old the, the king did to try to get rid of the three Hebrew children? What if God heated his wrath seven times hotter? But it says, lest he perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Just a very little of God's wrath is enough to destroy us. And then it says, blessed are they all they that put their trust in Him. Look at that. What a blessed thing to put your trust in the Lord. Look at the uh, third psalm, if you will. This is the psalm of David, and this is chapter 3. In it we're going to find David's enemies in verse 1. David's critics in verse 2. And David's confidence in verse 3. And David's prayer in verse 4. And David's faith in verse 5 and 6. And David's praise in verse 7 and 8. Let's look at the first thing. David's enemies. Increased in number. He says, 
He says, Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. By the way, if you look at your title under this psalm, and it, it is worth looking at at this time, it says, A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. Remember what Absalom had caused a great conspiracy against David. In Second Samuel chapter 15 and verse 12, it says, And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. Verse 13, And there came a messenger to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. So Absalom, David's son, had stolen the hearts of the people, and they were increased that trouble in him. Remember, David was a good king. Here comes along this uh, rebellious son, seeking power and seeking to take his father's place. And he gets the hearts of the people turned around. You know, people can be stirred up. That's why you don't put your trust in princes. People can be stirred up to turn against the best of men. They can be stirred up by evil ones to do that. That's what happens many times when you hear these mobs and these riots. You get someone stirred up against, uh, sometimes it's against good people that these terrible things happen. Most of us have seen on the television sometime or another an old western where they'd have a fellow in jail and he, they were trying to get him a trial and maybe it's to be proven to be innocent and probably wasn't innocent. And you get some old guy out there in the mob and he'll get all of them stirred up to go in and break the jail down and take him out and hang him. Well, listen, that's exactly what was happening in the case of David. He had a son that was rebelling against God, rebelling against him, trying to... T- Steal the nation from out from under him. And he was persuading the people. Look, it says, Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. That's David's enemies. Sometimes you will face enemies. And you'll have to face them kind of alone. You remember Paul says at my first answer, no man stood with me. But he said, the Lord stood with me. If it wasn't for God, we'd sink for sure, wouldn't we? I had that happen to me. I've had great numbers multiplied, but always God has seen me through. The Bible says, if God be what for us, who can be against us? Do one thing. If you're in the Lord's army, you better be willing to fight the battle because it's going to happen sooner or later. It'll come sooner or later. You'll have to take your stand for what you believe. And there may be many out there that, that will criticize you. Next thing, next verse is his critics. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. Selah. Look at that. There's David's critics. To kick a man when he's down is very cruel, isn't it? Psalm 22, verse 7 and 8, it says, All they that see me shall laugh me to scorn. Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful. When you find a man down, don't kick him down further. You try to lift him up. Do everything you can to help him instead of kicking him down. People just delight in finding a man down and doing him in. That's wicked. That's cruel. That's the worst thing in the world you can do. And look, their words, it says, Many there be which say of my soul, There is no help for him in God. Isn't it a terrible thing when your faith is weak and when you're having a struggle in your life for people to say God's not going to help you? Well, you know, that's awful cruel. Jesus had to endure that because at one time, on the cross, because of our sins, he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The very feeling that we sometimes feel Jesus endured to the ultimate, to the fullest, 
Because He was forsaken because of our sins. So you and I think it, need not think it strange if we have critics that will come along. And like David did, many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. And it says Selah. You know, there have been all kinds of things written about this word, Selah. It may mean a rest, like a pause in music. I think it is a term that has to do with the music. But on the other hand, there are others that say it means to raise the pitch or the tone to a higher level. And there are various uh, things that are written about it. But one has said to me one time that when you come to Selah in the, the Bible, and it has a ground for truth there too and for the statement, he says it means pause and rest. And what do you think of that, what's just been said? What do you think of that? What do you think of the fact that David had all these increase that trouble him, and many would say there is no help uh, for him and God? What do you think of that? It's a rest or a pause. And you can give it a lot of meaning because if you want to go uh, back and research, you can find that there's page after page written as to the meaning of the word and what it indicates. And there's a variation of meaning in it as well. And I think it sometimes depends upon the context as to what is really meant by the, the, the word Selah. But now verse 3, But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me. The word shield here is really a buckler. It's more than just a simple shield. But it, it covers and protects you all over. My glory and the lift up of mine head. Here's David's confidence. When they said that the Lord was not his helper, he believed the Lord was his helper. The Lord is our shield for protection. The Lord is our source of joy. And the Lord is our source of hope. He's, he's going to protect us. He's going to give us joy. And he's going to give us hope. These three things we know uh, David uh, considered the Lord to be his shield. That was for protection. My glory and the lifter up of my head indicate that the lifter up of his head would make him lift up his head and lift up his heart in hope. Samuel 30 verse 6 says, David encouraged himself in the Lord. Sometimes you and I have to encourage ourselves in the Lord. Maybe, maybe others will exhort you or admonish you. And uh, the Bible says, let all things be done uh, for that purpose, for the edifying, building up of the church. But on the other hand, sometimes you have to exhort yourself, too. It says, David encouraged himself in the Lord. First Samuel 30, verse 26. Uh, Jesus said, lift up your head, for your redemption draweth nigh, when you see things as they are in our days, looking for the coming of Christ. And then we find in verse 4, David's prayer. He says, I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill, Selah. I cried unto the Lord with my voice. Out of great sorrow, sometimes it produces great agony of soul. And notice what he said. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill. With my voice means a voice of, of uh, agony, of sorrow, of pain, of suffering. When we learn to cry unto God with our whole heart, then we can say, certainly, uh, it's like prayer and supplication, isn't it? Sometimes our prayers, it doesn't mean that you have to speak real loud to be heard. But it means that David was in such distress that he, and great sorrow that he cried out of the depths of his heart. 
concerned that Jesus cried in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Bible says that his soul was heavy, exceeding sorrowful even unto death. And the Bible says that he sweat as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Sometimes in great sorrow we learn to really pray. It doesn't mean others hear us. Maybe God is between you and God at that time. Some of our greatest praying is in private. Some of our greatest supplication is in private. Many times it's in the depths of our sorrow. And then we're just like at our wit's end. We're, we don't know where to turn. We're, we, the, we, we're grasping at straws, as you've heard people say. And we're just trying to get God to hear and answer. And sometimes that brings that kind of heartfelt prayer. He says he heard me out of his holy hill. God is up on a high hill and he hears us out of his holy dwelling place. And then let's notice verse 5 and 6 we'll find and we'll hurry quickly. Verse 5 and 6, David's faith. He has a consciousness of God's protection and this drives out the fear. Notice what he says, verse 5 and 6. I will not be afraid of 10,000... Wait, wait a minute, verse... I laid me down and slept. I awake, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousand of people that have set themselves against me round about. First of all, he said, I can lay down and sleep now. I can rest. He knows God is going to protection, protect him. The Bible says the angel of the Lord encamped round about them that fear him. And so we have God's divine protection. You lay down and sleep and then awake, knowing the Lord will sustain you. And he says, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people. Remember, they were multiplied against him that have set themselves against me round about. 